If you have a Bible today, please open it. Romans 11. Romans 11 is not one of those passages that I'm like, yeah, I wonder what I'll talk about today. Oh, I know Romans 11. And so really, maybe I didn't think this thing through when I thought the Holy Spirit was calling us to study the entire book of Romans verse by verse. No, I'm, 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 I'm not teasing. I'm, I'm just, actually, I am teasing. Um, no, he did, because this is so rich. This is so rich. So you're going to have to really pay attention and walk with us. But people have said this, that it's kind of hard to understand Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11, unless you look at it from a Jewish mindset. And I know what some of you are thinking. You should have told us that like three months ago <laughs> when we started Romans, Romans 9. But here's what that means, that the Jewish mindset that through Abraham, God said, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you so many descendants, they'll be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore, and I'm going to bless the entire earth through your descendants. And what happened is Jesus came through that lineage. And indeed, the world has never, ever been the same. But unfortunately, the Jewish mindset tends to be, well, we are a part of Abraham's lineage. Abraham is our father, grandfather, whatever. We are chosen by God. We are special. We are unique. And yet they rejected the very Messiah that God sent through the line of Abraham. So you kind of have to have this Jewish mindset in order to understand what he is talking about right here. Now, let me remind you, the Apostle Paul, the one writing this, was a Jew, and he is writing this, and he is reasoning to a certain conclusion. And we know that obviously today the gospel of Jesus Christ has been embraced by more Gentiles, which is probably every one of us in this room, than Jewish people, yet understand the Bible says that God is not through with the nation of Israel. He is not finished. So, before we read any scripture, three points that I want to draw out of this. And the first point is this, God has not changed his mind about the Jews. God has not changed his mind about the Jews. And then Paul is going to give us some proof here that indeed God has not changed his mind about the Jews. Uh, Romans chapter 11, look in verse 1. I say then... Has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life? But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul is giving us some proof that God indeed has not changed his mind about the Jews. And the first proof that he mentions there is himself. There's the proof of Paul. Paul says, hey guys, let me tell you how I know God's not through with the Jews. I'm a Jew. He saved me. Matter of fact, Paul's like, I promise you, you cannot become more Jew than I am. 
I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I am an Israelite of all Israelites. I am a descendant of Abraham. And you know what? God's still dealing with me. So the first proof that he's not changed his mind about the Jews is Paul. The second proof is the proof of Elijah. The proof of Elijah. There was a time when the Old Testament prophet Elijah You know, he is there, and he's like, I'm the only one. I'm just waiting to die because I'm the only one who really worships and serves the one true God. Everyone else has forsaken him. Everyone else has forgotten about him. So here I am. I'm just camped out. Oh, God, take my life. And here's what God said to him. Elijah, you're not the only one. Quit having a pity party. You ever been there? Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. You ever been there? I'm the only one. I'm the only one going through this. I'm the only one dealing with this. I'm the only one that's ever had to suffer this way. No one knows my pain. Elijah's sitting there and he's having a pity party. I'm the only one. And God's like, you don't even know what you're talking about. I've got 7,000 men that their knees have not bowed to the false prophet or the false idol Baal. There are 14,000 knees that have not hit the ground to the false idol. And that was the Jews. And so we have proof here that God has not changed his mind about the Jews. The proof of Paul, the proof of Elijah, but then third, the proof of the nation of Israel itself. If you were to go and you were to look at a globe or you were to look at a map that is 80 years or older, you will be surprised to see that there is no Israel on it. In the time in which we are living, that's the greatest proof that God has not rejected his people, that there is an Israel today. God is still active in the nation of Israel today. I mean, really, engage your brains for just a moment and stop and think about the miracle that the Jews have been able to maintain their identity for all these centuries. I'll give you an example. Anybody know an Edomite? No, because they don't exist. Anybody know a Jebusite? No! Because they cease to exist as people, as a nation. But yet we know that there are millions of Israelites that are still around today. Frederick the Great. He was the king of Prussia. And one time he was having a conversation with his chaplain. This was over 250 years ago. He said to the chaplain, prove to me with just one sentence that the Bible is really true. The chaplain thought for a while, and here's what the chaplain said. I don't even need a whole sentence to prove to you the Bible's true. All I need is two words. The Jews. The Jews. That within itself is proof that God indeed is a God of promise, that God is indeed a God that keeps his word. They still have some kind of identity after all these thousands of years. And here's what's so amazing. It seems as though that they always have an enemy that's trying to wipe them off the face of the planet. How many of you ever stopped to look at a map? Here's Israel, and surrounding all of Israel are people that are devoted their entire lives to wiping out Israel. But their ultimate enemy is our ultimate enemy. 
Not flesh and blood. It's the devil. See, Hitler, he committed the atrocity of the Holocaust. And I don't care what any politician says. All you have to do is look at the history books. It literally happened. Six million Jews lost their lives because they were Jews. But it was Satan that was working through Hitler. Because he was doing everything he could to destroy God's plan through his people, Israel. But he's never done it, friend. And he'll never do it. And despite tremendous persecution and tremendous discrimination, there still is a nation of Israel today, and there will always be a nation of Israel until Christ returns. If you don't believe what the Bible says, I challenge you, just turn on the news. Every day there's a story on the news talking about the nation of Israel. Every time I travel to Israel, matter of fact, I'll be taking another group in the end of February of 2023. Every time I travel to Israel, I'm moved as I see prophecy, biblical prophecy, being fulfilled today. Did you know this? Many, many years ago, the prophet Isaiah predicted that the fruit of Israel would one day fill the earth. Now, this did not happen until recently, but did you know that modern-day Israel, they export, they export its citrus fruit to every continent on the planet? That is a prophecy that could never have been fulfilled until our generation, and it has. We can look over in Amos chapter 9. God speaking through the prophet Amos, I want you to listen to what he said. He made a promise to the nation of Israel. This is in Amos 9. He says, I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will build the ruined cities and they will live in them. They've done that. You say, how do you know that, pastor? I've seen it with my own eyes. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine and make their gardens and eat their fruit. They've done that. How do you know, Pastor? I've seen it with my own eyes. I will plant Israel in their land never again to be uprooted. And that's the key. Never again to be uprooted from the land that I've given them, says the Lord their God. Now, you may have a commentary sitting on your bookshelf by some liberal Dr. Wigglejaw who will tell you that Amos chapter 9 is all about Israel coming back from the Babylonian captivity. The only problem with believing that is he says never to be uprooted again. Israel came back from Babylonian captivity. But I promise you, they were uprooted again. For 18 or 1900 years, they were uprooted. After 70 AD, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, there was no Israel. I mean, there was a time, guys, where there was not even, almost was not even the holy city of Jerusalem. In the Middle Ages, Jerusalem was nothing more than an obscure village with about 14,000 residents. That holy great city, only 14,000 residents. It almost passed off into obscurity, but listen to me, God has a plan for the Jews. And it was his plan all along. 1917, the British they gained control of Palestine from the Ottoman Turks. 
And there was an issue that came out, what is known today as the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration declared in 1917 that at least there was a possibility of a future state of Israel, a future nation of Israel. What happened is for 30 years, for 30 years from 1917 to 1947, the British botched it big time. For a little while, they'd play to the Arabs. For a little while, they'd play to the Jews. For a little while, they'd play to the Arabs. For a little while, they'd play to the Jews. Almost sounds like a government I'm aware of today. (laughs) They didn't know what to do. And so finally, in 1947, the British handed the entire mess over to the United Nations. And for once, and probably only once, the United Nations did something that I think halfway makes sense. On May the 15th, 1948, the United Nations chartered the nation of Israel. Yeah, we thank God for that, right? Guys, listen to me. We are alive during a time when all this Old Testament prophecy is being fulfilled. There is a nation of Israel. They exist today. God is not through with the nation of Israel. 1948, all they got was a little sliver of land right along the Mediterranean Sea known as Tel Aviv. If you don't believe that God, that God is all over Israel, all you got to do is look at the Six-Day War that happened in 1967. The enemy had, had four times as many warplanes, three times as many soldiers, yet in only six days, the Israelites captured Jerusalem again. And so for the first time, guys, in two and a half millennia, they were in an independent state now that was in control of Jerusalem. And when you read the Bible, they had not been their own independent state since about 600 B.C. When they were reestablished after the Babylonian exile, even during the times of Jesus, they were still under somebody else's control. The superpower like Syria or Egypt or Rome. But it was not until the time that you and I are living in today that Israel has become an independent nation once again. I'm just saying, guys, if you can't see the hand of God and all that, it's time you pull your head out of the sand. Open your eyes wider. How in the world can you sit there and say, well, the Bible is nothing more than a book of fairy tales and a book of fables, and it's just something that a man wrote? Oh, no, all you got to do is take the Bible and take a history book that actually tells true history, and you're like, my goodness, this is happening exactly the way the Bible said it would happen thousands of years before it ever even happened. My goodness, he's not through with his people. And folks will say, well, when a pastor, now what are you saying? Are you, are you saying that all the Jews are going to be saved? I'm not saying that at all. The Bible doesn't say that. I'm just saying God's not through. He hasn't changed his mind about the Jews. Okay? But now the second point that I want you to see that will hopefully bring a little bit of resolution to what we're talking about, God has also not changed his method of salvation. God's not changed his mind about the Jews, and he's not changed his method of salvation. 
I preached a sermon a long, long time ago, and maybe we need to pull it back out. And it was asking the very question, does God change his mind? Because there are translations that actually says it that way. I hold to the truth that God does not change his mind, that if God did change his mind, it was all part of his mind-changing plan to begin with. You're like, I don't understand it. Now you got it. Now you got it. Look with me in verse 5 of Romans 11. He says in verse 5, Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And that is so simple, isn't it? But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Do you notice he's using a word there a lot? It's the word grace. Grace. He's saying God has not changed his mind about the Jews, and God's also not changed his plan of salvation. It's not like God used to have a plan A, right? And since plan A didn't work out, all of a sudden he said, i got to now have a plan B. That's not it at all. His salvation is still the same. Now, when it comes to salvation, and we use the word salvation, I don't want to be presumptuous and just assume that you know what we're talking about. The Bible says this. The Bible says that we are all sinners. If you don't believe in I'm I'm a sinner, hang around me for a little while. And if you want me to believe that you're not a sinner, I'll hang around you a little while, and we'll both realize we're sinners. That we're all sinners, and sin separates us from God. The results of sin are spiritual death being separated from God for all eternity in a place very real called hell. You're like, I was reading a book the other day, and it said that hell is kind of symbolic. It's literal. (laughs) I'd like for you to talk to somebody who's in hell about that. That the only way I can be saved from the judgment of my own sin is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord. So when we use the term salvation, understand what we're saying there. But there are two methods that people use or they try to use to be saved. They're both mutually exclusive. The first one is this. Man's method of salvation is by works. He says it there in verse 6. He says, if it is by grace, it is no longer by works. And there are some people alive today, maybe even some in this room, some that are watching our television broadcast, that actually think that God's love and God's acceptance is based upon how they perform. That if you were to go out and you were to just start talking to people and you were to say, hey, can I ask you, if you were to die today, do you know that you would go to heaven? In which I double dog dare you to start doing that tomorrow. I double dog dare you. You ain't got the guts in you to do it. You know what might happen? Somebody's life might get changed forever if you would dare to ask that question. If you were to die today, do you know that you would go to heaven? Most folks respond this way in our culture. Yes. Okay. How do you know that? Why do you know that? Because I've been a good person. Hadn't killed anybody. Been faithful to my spouse. Take care of my family. I treat everybody nice. I live by the golden rule. A lot of times they say they don't even know what the golden rule is. I live by the golden rule and I go to church and it's, it's, it's like, okay, I'm living a life that is, that is what's going to get me to heaven because of how good I am. And we always want to determine how good we are by picking someone that's just atrocious and we say, well, I'm better than them. 
Can I just ask you, if, if works is what gets you to heaven, what is it the work that you do that qualifies that? What is the action? What is the deed? Well, I'm a Boy Scout and I help little old ladies across the street. Good for you. You should do that. Not going to get you into heaven. Is it because you're active in the church? For the life of me, I've not figured out church is a hobby. There are a lot of hobbies that would be much more fulfilling than being a part of a church and not knowing the very one that the church is dedicated to. What is the action, right? Uh, what could you imagine doing that would be good enough? Can you think of any work that you could do that'd be good enough? Many of you are familiar with arguably the most unselfish woman to ever live, Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Now, Annie Armstrong, Lottie Moon, same fabric. They put their own needs behind the needs of others. Mother Teresa, this wonderful woman of God, devoted her entire life, if not most of her life, to working with the hungry, dying people in Calcutta, India. For many years, she, she labored and nobody even knew who she was. And then all of a sudden, somebody was there on a trip. They saw what she was doing. She got a little bit of recognition, a little bit of fame that came her way. But most of the time, nobody even knew who she was. Yet she still did exactly the same thing. Somebody asked her one time, they said, you know what? How do you do all the good works that you do? How can you do that? And the way she replied was a classic. Here's what she said. She said, it's not my works. She said, it's only by the grace of God that I can even get out of bed every morning. Now, I want you to think about that. How many of you would sit there today and say, well, you know what? I'm, I'm right up there with Mother Teresa. I'm right up there with Lottie Moon, Annie Armstrong, to where I will place other people's even, will, or even ability to stay alive. I mean, I will make sure they have something to eat before I have something to eat myself. Anybody say that you're doing the work that she did? No. And even this woman who did all these good things says, I'm not trusting what I've done. It's by the grace of God. So it's not by works, right? It's not by works. Man's method is salvation by works, but then God's method, secondly, God's method is salvation by grace. I'll go back to what we said earlier. A lot of people think that God had plan A. What is plan A? Well, it came down through the Jews, right? Plan A is his law. So I've got to live a certain way. I've got to live uh, salvation by keeping the law. And then when that didn't work out, God's like, oh my goodness, I didn't see this coming. Oops, plan A is a failure. I got to go back to the drawing board that God's wringing his hands and God's like, I got to come up with another plan. I know plan B, plan B, that's going to be salvation by grace. No, it didn't happen that way. God knew from the very start that nobody could be saved by keeping the law. The law was not even given to so we might be saved through it. It was given so that it might reveal just how broken we are and how much we need a Savior. But friend, God knew from the very start nobody could be saved by keeping the law. How do we know that? Because the Bible says this, don't miss this. The Bible says this, that Jesus Christ is a lamb that was slain before the very foundation of the world. It was all part of God's plan. Sure, yes, Jesus Christ came to the Jews as an entire nation. The Jews did not receive him. 
But it wasn't God saying, oh, the Jews didn't accept him. The Jews didn't receive my plan of salvation. Now I'll go ahead and take it to the Gentiles. No, that's the promise that God made to Abraham from the very start. He said, not I'm going to bless the Jews through your descendants. His descendants were the Jews. God didn't say, hey, listen, man, because of your family, I'm going to bless your family. No, he says, because of your descendants, because of what I'm doing and I'm choosing through you, the entire world will be a blessing. And listen to me, the Jews got so inwardly focused on themselves, they put God in the box and they forgot about the rest of the world. They were God's chosen. Look at us. All the rest of you are cursed. And they missed the very blessing that God brought through the Jews. If we're not careful, we'll do the same thing. Churches are notorious for this. That they become so inwardly focused they forget about the rest of the world. That's usually when squabbles take place. That's usually when they argue over the silliest things like the color of something or what time services start or what the preacher wears. Silly stuff. What translation he preaches out of. Man, just find you a good one and wear it out, brother. This past week, Jennifer and I went to Cincinnati. I was invited uh, and, and I've had the opportunity to do this a few times. I was invited to go through the North American Mission Board and to, uh, to speak and do some training to pastors that were up around the Ohio, Kentucky, Michigan, that entire area. There were about 300 pastors that were there. And the topic that I was given to talk about is kind of the fabric, the DNA of who we are as a church, and that is earn the right to be heard. Earn the right to be heard. The folks will sit there and say, okay, listen, we've been looking at the numbers and everything. And first of all, are the numbers that you sharing, that you guys are sharing with us, are they absolutely true? And I'm like, well, you're the one asking for the numbers. Come and see for yourself. Well, how does Highland Park see that growth over the last 10 years? How does Highland Park see, I mean, the number of people that you guys baptize? How in the world is all that happening? And I'm like, well, first of all, let me just stop and say this. It is all through Jesus. He is the one that gives the increase. He is the one that gives the favor. Uh, I could have just told you that over the phone, but if you want to fly me somewhere, put me in a hotel and buy me a nice dinner, I'll come. <laughs> but listen, here's what I said, church. I still think God chooses to use a church that is on mission. That is on mission. Some of you that have been around here a long time, as you can remember, you can remember back when we were in the old sanctuary, and this was before it was even the worship center, back when we had that, I don't know, we had green carpet for a while. I don't remember. I think we put down some brown carpet or something for a little while. And you remember we had pews in there, and people would sit in the pews, and we had that little parquet floor, and we would come in on Monday morning, and the pews were so old, and we were trying to get so many people on those pews that there would be sawdust just all over the parquet floor from the pews. And, and there were times that literally pews broke during the service. 
And we said, here's what we're going to do. Pastor Carl, our executive pastor, went in there, and he's like, all right, all right man, I've, I've kind of done this, blah, blah, blah. And I figured out that if we put chairs in instead of pews, we can add about 100 more people in this room with putting chairs in instead of pews. And we said, that's what we'll do. We'll put chairs in instead of pews. And listen to me, I kid you not, there were some people, there were some people that said, I will not be here, I will leave here, because you can't worship God unless you're sitting in a pew. I'm like, I'd be so embarrassed to say something like that. Even if I thought that, I'd be embarrassed because spiritually that shows how immature you are. And I'm like, well, Hoss, you can hit the road. There are a lot of places around here that have pews. And we had 100 or so people left. And there were some that even left because we didn't pick out the right kind of chair. Hey, how about instead we just say, let's all come and stand out of honor and reverence of Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. If he went to the cross and paid the price in his fleshly body that deserved to be paid by you and I, then we can stand for an hour and a half and read the word and study it and praise him together. Okay, okay. You remember you clapped when you show up next Sunday and there are no chairs. You remember that. <laughs> No, we don't have anywhere to put the chairs. We couldn't even take them out of here. We'd have nowhere to put them. But, but see, see, see what happens? See how silly that is? See how silly when you forget the mission and you become so inwardly focused? Some of the most silliest things happen in the name of Jesus. And we were in the old building, and I can remember very clearly, it was a Sunday night service. Back when I, you know, we would have full-fledged preaching on Sunday night. And there were some that were like, oh my goodness, no, we're changing Sunday night. We're not going to have church on Sunday. Well, no, we're going to have church on Sunday night. We're just going to be a little bit more uh, intentional about discipleship. And we're going to follow a discipleship model. And then we'll do church on Wednesday night. Because I don't know about you, but in the middle of the week, man, I need some good old-fashioned praise and worship and studying God's word. He did away with church on Sunday night. We're going somewhere else. That's silly. But I can remember very clearly, here's the statement that was made. If all the buildings were to burn down and we're like, we can't, we can't build back. We're just going to break up. We're going to cease to exist as a church. And we'll just go our own way. Would the community even miss us? Now, here's what we did not know. That like seven or eight years later, it would not be a fire. It would be a wind. Back then, I'll be honest with you, I don't know that the community would have missed us. I, I praise God today, I think the community would. I think the, here's what happened with the Jews. The Jews were like, hey, listen, man, God has chosen us. We're his favored people. We're going to focus on ourselves and forget about the rest of the world to the point that they missed the whole reason they had been blessed. Jesus himself. And so this past week, as I was standing there before these pastors, and I'm like, guys, I'll just tell you this. This is kind of how we exist as a church. We exist for those that have yet to come. So we're going to earn the right to be heard just as we go. And afterwards, 
there was a, a professor at a seminary that came up and here's what he said. He said, hey, you think you could come and you could share exactly what you said to my doctorate of ministry students at seminary? Because listen to me, here's what he said. And please, we have not recreated, uh, we, we've not recreated a will or anything or created a will or created, a, I don't know, a tree. We haven't done anything. We're just like, hey, how about we love them, people in the name of Jesus so that in turn when we meet a physical need, we now might say, you got a greater need. It's spiritual. But here's what he said. Maybe you could come and talk to them because they don't hear this in seminary. We get so inwardly focused that we miss out on the gift. What did Jesus even say that they'd already done here? Mm. Well, here he is. Whatever you say about the Jewish people, he was a descendant of David, born into a Jewish home, and he was a Jew himself. And so God's blessing the world. Here's the third one. We've got to finish this up. God has turned Israel's rejection into our reconciliation. Now, our reconciliation is not because Israel rejected. I'm just saying, had I been God, and you know, I say this all the time, thank God I'm not God. If I were God, you'd all be going to hell. <laughs> now, I'd be okay because I'm God. <laughs> and you would be the same way. I don't say that to be disrespectful. I don't even say that to get a laugh. You would be that as well. Because we would sit there, and the first time disobedience happened, we'd say, maybe you didn't understand what I said. I'll give you another chance. And then most of you would be the second time, all right, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice. Shame. I got to remember how it goes, but bam, zap, you're gone. <laughs> and then some of you that are a little bit more patient will say, oh, I'll give you a third time. And none of us would make it out of the first hour. So it wasn't a situation that because they rejected, no, if, I would have just said, forget it. But look at what it says in verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. If I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. It almost seems like he's just contradicted what he said. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? He's not done with the Jews. For I speak to you Gentiles, that'd be us, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, the Jews, and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Mm. 
A couple things about God taking that Israel's rejection and bringing about reconciliation for you and I. First of all, as we already said, Israel did not recognize Jesus as Messiah. You read verse 7, you read verse 8, you read read verse 9, and you're like, that sounds so confusing to me. Because you sit there and you say, now wait just a minute. How could God harden the hearts of the very people that he chose? How could God blind their eyes? Look at verse 7. It says in verse 7, the others were hardened. In the Greek, it's the word pyrosis. It means like a callus. It's almost kind of like a cataract on the eye. It is a hardening. In other words, they were so hardened in their hearts and in their eyes that they didn't even see Jesus. They didn't recognize Jesus. Now, here's what I know. The Bible teaches a hardened heart's a dangerous thing. The New Testament says to us, Christians, beware, be careful, lest there be any of you with a hardened heart. Do you know that there are a lot of folks in America today that have made the very same mistake that the Jews made? What we have in our culture today are people who are gospel-hardened. They've heard the gospel message so much and they've not responded. They've heard the gospel on television and they've not responded. They've had family members and friends that have shared the good news and they've not responded. And it's almost like when you handle something over and over, like if you're using a push mower over and over and you'll have calluses that'll develop on your hands or you're using a shovel or something like that. They've handled the gospel over and over, yet they've not responded so their heart might be set free, so their heart might be changed, that what has happened is it's become calloused. He uses the word hardened because they've, heard it and they've not responded so many times. You're like, what if that's me? I'd say this, you pray to God, God, break the hardness of my heart. So you don't make the same mistake that the Jews made. God, soften my heart. Maybe you have somebody in your life that you have witnessed to over and over and now as soon as you say the word, they're like, oh, don't start talking that Jesus stuff to me. Here's usually how it goes. I used to go to church and I had a bad experience at church. I mean, if we're determining on what we're going to do in life by bad experiences, then we'll be doing nothing. I went to Walmart last week on a Friday night. I had a bad experience. But when I want that cheese dip that they only sell at Walmart, guess where I'll be going? No, friends, listen to me. Pray that their hearts would be softened. Pray that God would break the callousness and the hardening that has taken place there. Stop and think about this in the context of what he is saying. For 33 years, Jesus walked among them. They heard Jesus teach. They saw Jesus perform miracles. Yet their hearts were hardened and they missed it. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus is standing, right? He's looking over Jerusalem. And listen to what he said. This is in Matthew 23, 37. He said this. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who have killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Hear me. 
The Israelites, they were not blinded because they rejected Jesus. They rejected Jesus because they were blinded. What did Jesus say that they had already done? He said, we've already sent the prophets to you and you killed them. We sent messengers to you to talk to you about drawing true to the one true God and you stoned them to death. Over and over again, my father's message has been a message of grace and yet you've already decided you would not receive. In other words, the hardness had already begun. But praise God, because we may receive the riches of reconciliation. Because God, instead of saying, okay, Israel, you rejected my chosen people, you rejected, then the gospel is done. He says, no, there is riches and I will give it to all who believe. Look at what he says in verse 15. He says in 15, if their rejection is our reconciliation. It is. It is the riches of reconciliation. You say, what is reconciliation? Reconciliation is simply, here is a God, a God that is holy, a God that is sinless. Here you and I are, unholy, sinful. We are separated from God. And so there needs to be a rightening, if you will. There needs to be a, 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 a reconciliation that takes place. We've got to work out some kind of transaction so that we can get together. The Bible word for reconciliation literally means the exchange of coins in a business deal. It, it is somebody who is carrying out a business deal with somebody else, and when the price has been agreed upon and the price has been paid, basically they say, Are we square? Are, are we good? So it's a done deal. And when the two parties get together and agree together, the price has been paid and then it's a done deal. That is reconciliation. Whenever I go to Israel, I always love to go into the marketplace in Israel because I love to barter. It's not that I need anything. I've brought home uh, tablecloths that I knew Jennifer would never put on the table. But I got them for a good deal. And I have trinkets that are laid all over my house and all over. I mean, I mean, how many coffee cups do you need from Jerusalem? I have all these little wood makings and wooden pins and wooden letter openers because you get a lot of letters today. Because I love going into the marketplace and I'll say, what do you want for this? And they'll say, $10. And I'm like, I'll give you five. No, 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 no. Much too good for $5. I'm like, all right, I'm out of here. And I start walking out knowing I don't even want the thing. And the guy's like, how about seven? And I'm like, all right, let's talk. <laughs> and I walk out of there. And, you know, but you have to be careful because there have been times that I thought we had settled on a dollar amount. And then he tried to take the original money when I gave him money. Whoa, no, 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 uh-uh. We settled on $5. Okay, okay, okay. I will give you two for 15. <laughs> you crazy? And so I buy this beautiful, this beautiful tablecloth that would turn yellow in the flight back to the States. 
And I'm walking around, I'm like, look at this. I walk into my group, look at this, I got this for $5. And then another lady will come walking up, she goes, look at this tablecloth, I got it for $2. That's the same one I've got. Are we good? That's what we'd say. At the end of the deal, I'd say, all right, $5, are we good? Are we good? Are you sure? $5, done deal? Are you good? Friend, that's what this means right here. That here is God in all of his holiness. Here we are in all of our sinfulness. And for the payment of our sins and for the payment of our salvation, God required a sinless substitute, right? A spotless lamb of God to die in our place. I don't qualify. Neither do you. Because we're all sinful, we're not sinless. And I had to have somebody to stand in my place. I had to have somebody to take my place. And his name is Jesus Christ. I'll explain it this way and we'll be done. Let's just imagine for a moment, okay? Imagine with me that you are, you, you are living in poverty, that you don't have money to buy food, you don't have a house to live in, you don't even have, you don't have money to buy clothes, and you're walking along just trying to figure out how you're even going to be able to survive without any money, right? And as you're walking along, you look up on a hill and you see this gorgeous, beautiful mansion that is up there, and you're like, that is the most beautiful house I've ever seen. I, I, what would it be? be like to live there. And then all of a sudden, this guy who you don't even know walks up to you and he says, hey, you don't know who I am, but I know who you are. Matter of fact, I've been waiting on you. I own that house right there. And I'm going to let you have that house today. And you're like, oh my goodness. And he's like, for a million dollars. You're like, a million dollars? I I don't even have money to buy a sandwich. And then all of a sudden you're thinking in your mind, all right, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe if I worked real hard, maybe if, I, maybe if I got job after job after job, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe I could save up money and go buy a lottery ticket. I'll probably get shot buying the lottery ticket, but I'll roll the dice anyway. And by the way, quit buying lottery tickets. Hey, instead invest in the kingdom of God and see what God will do with that money that you're trying to strike it rich with, trying to buy a, a, a more comfortable lifestyle off the back of the poverty. Anyway, that's separate. So they told me don't sit down behind the pulpit. So, 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 so you're there, right? And then all of a sudden, you come down here. So you're there. And you're like, Amanda, I can't, I can't. If I work the rest of my life, I can't, I can't pay a million dollars. And the guy's like, hey, no big deal. Because I'm going to give you a million dollar check. I'm going to give the check to you, and then you give it back to me, and the house is yours. Do, do you remember a few weeks ago, as we were walking through Romans, we made this statement that even faith is a gift from God. What is the greatest need I have? It's not a mansion. It's salvation. One will work real hard. Maybe one day I can afford to buy it. You'll never be able to afford it. But don't worry. Because there's someone, even though you hadn't been looking for him. Mm, this is good preaching right here. Even though you hadn't been looking for him, he's been looking for you. Why? Because he's already paid the price 
Yet the house belongs to him. And now he offers you not only the gift of the house, now he offers you the gift of the money, faith, to be a recipient of the house, grace, because it's what he did. See, here's what God says. God says, you'll never be able to forgive yourself because you're sinful. Don't worry about it. I knew that before I created you. So instead, I offer you grace. Yeah, yeah matter, matter of fact, there's nothing you can do to get the grace. It's a gift. And I'll even give you the key that unlocks the faith or the grace, and it's the gift of faith. You're like, well, what do I have to do? Well, what do you do when somebody gives you a gift? You receive it. First of all, you believe. You believe it's a gift. And you receive that gift. So here are the Jews, the very ones that with Abraham, God said, hey, listen, man, I'm going to do something through you. I've chosen you, Abraham, and I'm going to bless the entire world. And I want to challenge you sometime. Start studying Abraham's family and flesh that out because there are many times down through there you're reading and you're like, uh, there's no way God's going to bless this. God didn't know about that crazy, crazy niece that was coming. God's like, no, I got a plan. And the very people that should have been a recipient got so focused on their own selves that they missed the greatest gift the world's ever received. And so today, listen to me, today, he extends that gift to you. Well, I'm not a Jew. Sweet. But I'm not a Gentile. Cool. Here's the great thing about the grace of Jesus Christ. It's not a respecter of persons. Today he gives. Will you receive his gift of faith, which enables you to be a recipient of that house of grace? Hey guys, this is Stephen Kyle, and I want to thank you for listening to our podcast today, Unchangeable Truth. This is a ministry of Highland Park Baptist Church in Panama City, Florida. We would love for you to visit us if you ever find yourself in the Panama City area. Our address is 2611 Highway 231 North. You can also learn more about our church and its ministry by going to our website, www.highland, and it's H-I-L-A-N-D, park.org. There you'll learn more about what we believe, what we teach, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There'll also be a sermon archive there so you can go and listen to various sermons over the last several years. As always, we would love to talk to you about your relationship with Jesus Christ. So feel free, shoot us an email, info at highlandpark.org. If you'd like to learn more about Jesus and what it means to follow him, Our prayers are that you would draw near to Christ, that this podcast would be used to point you to Jesus and to help your faith grow and your walk increase. God bless you guys. Thank you for listening.